Today's guest served over 20 years as a senior foreign service officer in a range of different cultures and situations. He has also worked previously for over 15 years with a wide array of non-profit private voluntary agencies and NGOs. Welcome to the show, Mr. Wind. How are you doing? Thank you very much uh, for having me, Toby. Uh, great day. And please feel free to call me uh, Alonzo. Alonzo, yes. <laughs> Thank you so much, Alonzo. I, I really appreciate um, your time. Thank you so much for joining me today on this episode of Mirror Talk. Um, as we said earlier, or as I said earlier, or during the conversation, we didn't talk about that quite well, I guess. Um, you are a retired senior foreign um, service officer from the U.S. Agency for International Development. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. And you have worked and in... Your... Pardon? No, no, I was... Go ahead, go ahead, please. Sorry. Okay, sorry. And you, you have worked in you know, various parts of the world. You started your career as a rural public health U.S. Peace Corps um, volunteer, where you were widely known as Dr. Alonzo. <laughs> um, can, you, can, you share, can you share your life and career journey with me? Why were you known as Dr. Alonzo? Well, you know, as you just mentioned, I, I started out uh, as a U.S. Peace Corps volunteer working in rural public health. And this was really a bit of a, an ambition I'd had uh, growing up and in college. I, I knew that I would want to serve in the Peace Corps because Peace Corps has a lot of meaning and significance, uh, at least it did at, at that time in the United States, kind of the, the aspirations and optimism from the 1960s, President Kennedy, um, President Johnson and the like before things began to turn uh, a bit sour in the political dialogue in the United States. But I had this idea that I would go and serve two years in the Peace Corps and then probably return to the United States uh, in terms of following a career. And things did not quite uh, play out. You know, they, they ended up turning in a very different direction. Yeah. Oh. Well, um, well, can you tell me, you know, how you, you know, went from that Peace Corps to, you know, being um, in the U.S. Um, ID? Well, I served as a Peace Corps volunteer in Ecuador, rural mm. Ecuador on the Pacific coast of South America. And uh, I was first working in some coastal villages, um, you know, applying the Spanish that I uh, had a refresher in during Peace Corps training and also Spanish that I had studied in high school, uh, as well as basic training uh, that the Peace Corps provided me in terms of uh, uh, public health education, uh, basic nutrition, sanitation, digging latrines, well digging and the like, and, and basically living among the poor families on the, uh, in the coastal part of Ecuador. As it turned out, I, I really found uh, a tremendous sense of fulfillment working with the uh, families uh, in Ecuador. And uh, following my two years of Peace Corps service, I was invited to uh, join a non-governmental organization working in another part of Ecuador, uh, an organization known as Plan International. Back then it was known as Foster Parents Plan. Uh, where I served as a program advisor. And that really was a start of a, a vocation. I realized that I would not be heading back to the United States anytime soon, but would continue to work 
and deepen my own understanding, deepen my own skills in terms of integrated rural development. You know, community development at the most basic village level, family level, trying to work uh, ultimately with promoters and community educators to improve the quality of the program being offered. And uh, what initially had been planned as a two-year adventure ended up becoming five years in Ecuador, working at different levels, increasing levels of responsibility. And things were kind of cemented in when towards the end of those five years, I ended up being headhunted and invited by a US-based private voluntary organization called Esperanza, mm -hmm. which had a rudimentary primary healthcare program in Bolivia and was famous for operating a hospital ship kind of like Project Hope on the Brazilian Amazon uh, to go and serve as ultimately their country director in Bolivia. Mm -hmm. And that would be the start of another five-year adventure in Bolivia, wow. where I took on greater and greater responsibilities, managing larger and larger programs, which ultimately, uh, I think it's fair to say, impacted uh, significantly on the public health mm -hmm. uh, for many Bolivian people. Wow, that's that's awesome. And what, what does peace um, cool means to the um, world? And you know, what does it mean to you also? Well, that's a good question, Toby. For me, Peace Corps is really the embodiment within uh, uh, really the United States of service, national service. We don't have a national service obligation in the United States, um, and we don't even have a military draft anymore. That was ended. Um, at the end of the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, you know, regardless of your politics uh, and your position in terms of the military and a military draft, there really is something important to be said about a national service obligation, such as is applied in a number of different countries in Europe and Israel and, and other countries. Because, you know, the reality is, uh, and, I, and I think it's certainly true uh, for people this day and age, uh, when you're graduating high school or going into college, you don't necessarily have a good idea in terms of what are the sorts of things you can do. Mm. And what better way uh, than a national service obligation of a year or two to expose you to things which may be outside of your usual experience yeah. and to force you to come to terms with things that you hadn't quite understood or had been otherwise exposed to in terms of different cultures different practices, different economic conditions of people uh, to serve your country in some way, in my case, in Peace Corps, you know, trying to contribute to supporting the uh, uh, interaction with underdeveloped countries, trying to improve uh, the outreach that the United States was providing in terms of foreign assistance. Yeah. Uh, and really, Peace Corps comes down to a people-to-people -people relationship above all, where people who go out for two years as a volunteer uh, in different capacities, be it health or education or teaching English or agriculture, they not only serve a technical function in terms of actually helping people in different countries, but really they learn so much, they gain so much, from the people of those countries in terms of a deeper understanding and a deeper appreciation of what the world is like. And building those bridges of understanding is really at the heart of what Peace Corps 
is about. In my case, it also was a stepping stone to the development of a career in international development and humanitarian assistance, first with a group of different non-governmental organizations, and then eventually to, uh, as you mentioned earlier, the uh, Foreign Service and the Senior Foreign Service in a diplomatic capacity with the United States government in the administration of foreign assistance. Mm, wow. And what were like, you know, some of the most important and moving experiences that you had as a Peace Corps um, volunteer in Ecuador? Well, I, re- I really had a range of experiences, both good and bad. I think on the challenging side, certainly um, living the life of many of the, uh, the rural families, uh, in some cases, uh, the campesinos, as they say in Spanish, the peasantry, you know, living in small communities. I too also faced some of the health challenges that they faced, you know, in terms of having to uh, drink water that wasn't clean or pure Mm -hmm. and be exposed to not necessarily the best of uh, food supplies. And so I faced my own sort of health challenges off and on. I won't get too graphic in this conversation (laughs) uh, unless you ask questions about it, although I talk about it a bit in uh, the Ecuador chapter of the book, the mm. kinds of things that I also had to face in terms of my own health. Yeah. Um, but I think even more importantly, I came to see the reality of the people in terms of how uh, really they were marginalized from the benefits of a good education system and a good health system mm. and how that left them, uh, how that contributed and reinforced the poverty that they were also facing. And I'd like to believe it, it helped me develop a greater recognition and appreciation for the sort of privilege that I had as a, uh, not necessarily wealthy, but certainly relatively comfortable American coming from uh, you know middle-class background in the States and having to see the reality that's certainly far more true for so many uh, hundreds of millions, if not billions of people uh, around the world. So really opened up my awareness. I think probably uh, one of the most meaningful experiences were in terms of some of my health experiences, seeing children uh, often um, under five years of age die for really reasons that were entirely preventable. I talk a bit in the book in terms of seeing experiences with uh, children in the community that I was initially working in suffering from intestinal worms um, and then you know, dying from that, uh, something that really could have been avoided so easily with access to pure water. Yes, yes, that, that's, re- that's really sad. That's really, yeah, heartbreaking actually. And um, talking about your book, I would love us to you know, talk about it right now, your memoir entitled Andean's Adventure. Um, can you tell me more about this memoir? What was the inspiration behind it? I know it's, it's about your life, about your life experiences, but what inspired you to, you know, put a pen on paper and write it? Well, I call it Andean Adventures because um, by far the largest portion of the book really takes place in the Andean countries of Northwest South America, mm-hmm. um, essentially Ecuador, Bolivia, and Peru. But they also represent sequentially the first countries that I came to work in before I realized that I would basically be working um, as a vocation, as a career in international development and humanitarian assistance. 
And I thought the purpose of the book was to try to describe for readers, young and young at heart, um, the meaning of what service uh, working within um, impoverished countries, uh, the development of vocation, how the meaning of that came to touch me, and the importance, I think, of similar or comparable experiences for others. Uh, we were talking a moment ago in the uh, pre-game show, so to speak, <laughs> uh, in terms of the whole idea of national service. And, you know, I, I do talk about in the book the sense that I think that uh, the United States should consider emulating other countries that have a national service program. Mm. Uh, and I think, you know, that's true for many countries. I think taking uh, young people, you know, who are in uh, their early 20s, exposing them to circumstances where they don't really have any control, where they're exposed to people of different uh, economic classes, mm -hmm. um, different racial backgrounds, different uh, social backgrounds, helps us to grow as people, helps to widen our own understanding really of the world around us. I think it also helps build compassion and empathy for anyone mm -hmm. in terms of giving them exposure to different sorts of experiences like that. Yes. And I think it helps us be better at whatever ultimately our um, lifetime uh, vocation and job may be. Not everyone is necessarily going to want to consider working in the kinds of circumstances that I did. Yeah. But, you know, even people going back home to work as a teacher or a doctor or a lawyer or a politician will hopefully find their spirit and their understanding of the world widened by having that kind of national service experience. Yes, that's true. Well, and you know, your book is so wonderful because it reminds us of the importance of understanding, respecting, and accepting our cultural differences also. So um, how can we best do this? How can we best understand, respect, and accept our cultural differences? Like, how did you do it in Ecuador, for example? You know, you're from the U.S., living in, in Ecuador. How, did, how are you able to, you know, um, come to terms with the cultural differences? Well, uh, I guess to a certain extent, you could say trial by error. I mean, I made more than my share of mistakes mm. uh, in terms of uh, misreading different uh, social circumstances, as well as uh, being exposed to uh, people that I uh, wouldn't otherwise have been exposed to. For example, I talk a bit about my host family mm. in Buena Fe, Quevedo, where the the host father, you could say, Don Guido Montes, um, who was uh, originally serving as my guide, my entree into the community of Buena Fe, mm. um, how I came to see his life. He was um, on one level, uh, the uh, proprietor of a pharmacy, uh, uh, a very small little drugstore in this village of Buena Fe, uh, the Farmacia San Martin, uh, but he was also a, essentially a trained, you could say, nurse's aide, um, able to do kind of rudimentary things. But he was also on another level, something that in Spanish we might call a curandero, 
um, a basically a traditional healer. Uh, perhaps it would be better understood by, by people. Uh, the poorest and most indigent people of the village and really surrounding villages would come to him uh, with their different uh, complaints and seeking uh, health advice, medical advice. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, they prefer to come and talk to him rather than necessarily the more formally trained doctors that were in town at the Ministry of Health subcenter. Uh, you know, I had something of an initial reaction where I looked at that a bit askance, you know, a bit suspicious, thinking, you know, well, you know, Guido isn't really trained, you know, to act like a doctor in all of this. Uh, is this really uh, good that he's doing? Is he really perhaps doing a disservice to the people that are coming to him? But I also came to see that, uh, in essence, uh, he also was fulfilling on some level a pastoral function. He was accessible to the people. They could talk to him about their problems. Gita would offer advice. And when things were not necessarily, uh, you know, in his range of understanding, he was smart enough to know that he had to bring in a more professionally trained doctor mm -hmm. in terms of being able to help. And in fact, Gita had a kind of a, uh, improvised clinic in the back of the pharmacy. And he actually hired uh, these two doctors who were working for him. Mm. Uh, you know, this relatively uneducated uh, traditional healer, they were working for him and they would provide on the one hand, this legitimacy as far as the Ministry of Health was concerned for what Gita was doing. Yeah. But they also fulfilled a service in terms of working with a traditional healer like Guido in terms of addressing problems. Mm. And I came to realize that, uh, you know, in many countries of the world, um, not only in Latin America, but also in, in Africa, I, I would later go on many years after the events of this book, I would go on and work in quite a few different African countries, mm. as well as other countries in, in Western Asia. You know, there's often an important place in terms of health messaging, in terms of education, in terms of building understanding uh, in the poorest communities for these traditional healers. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I would come to understand years later how important it would be to build bridges and connections between the traditional healers and the more uh, formally trained professionals uh, that, of course, uh, we all hope to see spread in, in countries around the world. Yes, yes. Wow, that's that's really like a very broad um, story. Like, yeah, as in, you know, the, the, um, we have to accept the way a community, you know, runs its or, um, operations. We have to understand how a community runs its operation, how it um, does its um, 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 social amenities or social activities and, um, come to terms with that, understand it, and probably also, if it's not bad, if it's working for them, then probably just accept it also for them, with them. Yeah. There were times when, you know, I would see things that Guido would do, and I, you know, admit, I would wish that, uh, you know, he had other kinds of help uh, available to him. But, hmm. you know, one of the, uh, I think, uh, uh, positive things about my experience was, I mean, I, I, I learned from Guido and from his uh, 
you know, role in the community. But uh, I'd like to believe that uh, some of the things that I was teaching uh, rubbed off on Guido. And I think that, uh, you know, they did. I think both Guido and his uh, then wife, uh, Rosario, um, really took it upon themselves to go beyond, uh, uh, you know, the scope of what one would normally expect. And, you know, really helped me going out to different little uh, villages outside of the center of Buena Fe and uh, helping to talk to school teachers, helping to talk to other community leaders to introduce me so that I could fulfill my role and my services as uh, a Peace Corps volunteer. Uh, so I think it was you know, quite a, a humbling experience as well. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'll say that uh, you know, many years later, over the course of the last uh, uh, five, 10 years or so, actually some of the children and grandchildren of the people that I met mm-hmm. uh, in those villages in Ecuador have reached out to me, if you can wow. believe it, on Facebook and other social media, yeah. just to kind of reestablish ties uh, with me. And it's it's been rather marvelous in terms of being able to have that kind of uh, unexpected contact with people mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in, in such a different country, such a different environment than what one uh, normally has. Wow. Uh, so that's been a, a bit of a joy as well. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's a wonderful thing to experience. Yes. But talking, of, talking about wonderful, um, you know, you've gone through a lot also. Um, you have been shot at, you've been arrested, <laughs> you've been threatened and also endanger, endangered. Um, you have, you know, survived incredible and unexpected danger as a global humanitarian volunteer. Can you share some of the, you know, the powerful lessons that you learned from from your travels? Well, one um, sobering experience I had um, actually while in Bolivia Mm. um, was uh, when I was leading up a development project in the Chaco region of Bolivia on the border with Argentina and Paraguay. on behalf of this uh, organization, Esperanza. And uh, I ended up uh, discovering or finding out about this guy who was apparently connected with uh, US government military intelligence, Mm. who was trying to essentially infiltrate what we were doing. And he came up to me and basically introduced himself supposedly as being from the US embassy um, up in La Paz, Bolivia, but I knew, you know, he wasn't necessarily directly connected with the embassy. He was really up to no good, basically uh, information gathering and seeking to have my help in terms of supporting, uh, you know, what he was doing. Mm-hmm. Now, perhaps policymakers, uh, you know, back in the United States had uh, a range of different reasons, some good and some less good in terms of wanting to have a collection of of information. Um, I don't want to say spying, uh, but basically that kind of intelligence gathering in an area like that. But uh, my concern was that this was actually something, if directly connected with our project, it would undermine our credibility with the Bolivian government authorities and put us all at danger or risk of being kicked out of the country and and interfering with the good that we were trying to do in terms of 
public health and agriculture and small animal husbandry in this isolated select section of Bolivia. And so I um, took uh, some forceful action to have this guy uh, uh, discouraged from what he was doing. Uh, and uh, then uh, when he didn't take the hint, uh, I threatened to call the, the local police chief on him, uh, who I knew, and, and have him pulled out. But then the thing exploded in my face when a couple of days later, I found myself being recalled to La Paz, um, you know, and which was an arduous trip of about uh, 24 to 36 hours by train and plane and, and other means uh, to then uh, find out that the then US ambassador uh, was demanding that I be kicked out of the country. Mm. Um, and he had no authority to do so. I wasn't working for the US government. I'm working for, uh, I was working at that time for a private non-governmental organization. Mm. But uh, I was able to meet with the officials at the USAID mission in La Paz, explain the circumstances, talk about the danger of what it would have been had I allowed this guy who had tried to penetrate our project team and project staff to continue to do some of the things that he was doing. And uh, luckily the uh, mission director was able to uh, go to the ambassador and make it very clear that uh, you know, he was out of line with what he was doing. And so I was spared uh, being given uh, you know, what we used to call the sky hook in terms of being pulled out of the, the country. But it was a sobering experience, and it was also, um, you know, a uh, basically an opportunity for me to understand sometimes the challenges of different agendas, mm -hmm. which may partially overlap mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, maybe what you're trying to do good within that kind of setting, but where there may be other agendas that might be also in conflict mm -hmm. with that. Um, so that was, uh, you know, one particularly challenging experience. And then, you know, another experience came uh, when uh, I was uh, uh, taking the train down, actually taking a little bit of R&R, &R, a little bit of a break, uh, and going down to uh, visit a neighboring country of uh, Chile um, on holiday. And uh, as I was taking the train from La Paz, uh, Bolivia, across the highlands of the Andes down to uh, the coast of Chile. Uh, at that time, you know, Chile still had the military dictatorship of uh, Pinochet. And uh, uh, it was a sobering experience when we were all kind of stopped at the Chilean-Bolivian border and having to get off the train and show our passports to the Chilean military police before boarding the train to continue on our trip. And I remember the, uh, the police officers who were interrogating myself and, and some of the people I was traveling with, they, they asked our names and all this, and then they asked me my name, they asked for my religion, and I said Jewish. And the, the guy said, oh, ha, 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 and proceeded to say, Heil Hitler, and do a, a Nazi salute. And, you know, I almost reacted uh, violently to that. A mm. uh, friend I was with uh, restrained me, but it was a sobering reminder in terms of the reality of that military dictatorship and the fact that there, were, there was a lot of Nazi influence uh, 
you know, after World War II in those countries of the southern cone of Chile and Argentina and Paraguay in particular, a lot of Nazis hidden there. Ultimately, I would make it down to Santiago, the capital of the country, uh, and there meet up with uh, a friend who was a reporter for the Christian Science Monitor, uh, who was actually covering a memorial mass uh, for one of the uh, democratic uh, leaders who had been uh, uh, marginalized when the democracy was overthrown in Chile in the, in the early 1970s. Uh, this this uh, gentleman, uh, Eduardo Fry, had passed away. Uh, he was a former president of, of Chile, and there was a mass at the cathedral in downtown Santiago. And I was there when the military police of the dictatorship um, proceeded to surround the square. They didn't dare enter into the cathedral to interfere with things because the, the archbishop uh, from the Catholic Church had warned that any soldiers that violated the precincts of the church would be excommunicated. Mm. Uh, but immediately after the memorial mass ended, uh, as people were coming out from the uh, cathedral, uh, the military police came in with water cannon and tear gas and rubber bullets and attacking basically the crowd. Uh, many of them, of course, were protesting against the regime. So I had the experience of seeing that directly through something of the lens of uh, an international journalist, because my friend was reporting, as I say, with the Christian Science Monitor. Yeah. We, got, uh, our, we were holding up cartons uh, to protect ourselves, you know, against uh, any kind of projectiles. Uh, and we had uh, kind of handkerchiefs soaked in water to protect ourselves a, a little bit, mitigate against the tear gas that was going on. Mm. But uh, the cartons that we were holding up to protect ourselves, I know, got hit with impacts of rubber bullets. Mm. Luckily, both of us weren't hurt. I don't recall how many people actually were hurt in that melee, but uh, my friend was able to report on it to... Uh, the uh, uh, newspaper back in the States mm -hmm. and exposed, uh, you know, again, some of the realities of what was going on in terms of that military dictatorship, yeah. um, which uh, ultimately would survive for, this is 1981, 82 or so when it happened, I guess the military dictatorship was finally um, overthrown and democracy returned to Chile, perhaps about seven years later. Mm -hmm. um, now, of course, around the world, uh, you know, we see uh, democracy being threatened in, in many different countries with the return of right-wing authoritarians, sometimes with military support. And so it gives me a particular perspective in terms of having seen the effects of military dictatorships on the social circumstances of countries in Chile, as well as uh, Argentina, uh, when I travel through there in Paraguay, both of whom, all three of which were had military dictatorships at that time. Yeah, wow. Well, after, you know, experiencing all of these challenging and sobering um, experiences, uh, would you still encourage, you know, more young people to consider humanitarian services? And why do you think this is important, actually? Well, I think it's important always for people to be exposed to uh, circumstances that, that uh, they might not otherwise be exposed to. Hmm. Um, being in a situation where you are helping others, you are trying to 
at least for a fixed amount of time, help address perhaps a disaster, a, a natural disaster or a man-made disaster, uh, not just you know, contributing money to a particular cause, but actually going out there, such as in the case of what's being ha happening here in the States with these terrible storms, increasing uh, effects of climate change, you know, the hurricanes mm. uh, that have come across uh, uh, North America just in the last uh, week or two. Uh, they came in through Louisiana and the southern part of the United States, New Orleans, which of course was so badly hit by Hurricane Katrina and other and other hurricanes, um, and then went across the country to create even more flooding in the Northeast, you know, going and actually getting involved in those kinds of situations where people have possibly lost everything due to a flood or a natural disaster. Yeah. I think it actually is of much more value to us, perhaps, than the people that you are uh, actually trying to help. I mean, that's mm -hmm. not to minimize you know, the assistance that one can provide in that kind of thing, trying to help people get access to food, trying to help people get access to clothing and protection, shelter. But I think when we stretch ourselves, when we force ourselves to not just, you know, whatever our religious beliefs may be, not just repeat, you know, whatever kind of prayers might exist, be it in a church or a synagogue or in a mosque, but actually be forced to directly be involved in serving and helping others with tremendous need. I think those are circumstances that help build us that make us more complete people, that make us more compassionate people. As I was mentioning earlier, they create empathy for us and, and hopefully they make us better citizens in terms of the kinds of choices that we have to uh, face you know, as citizens in the, in the countries that uh, we have. I was always very impressed when uh, in different countries that I served in, in Latin America, Africa, and Asia, you know, I would see people who didn't have a lot uh, sometimes uh, be in situations where the little that they had, they would offer to others who perhaps were in even more tragic and difficult circumstances. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it probably, fulfills a, a parable of faith uh, that can, you can find in any of the religious traditions, uh, be it Judaism or Christianity or Islam, mm. that, uh, you know, understanding that uh, even if you um, don't have that much or necessarily enough for yourself, yeah. um, nevertheless, you, you uh, do so much more for yourself by giving to others or in even more dire circumstances. I mean, those were certainly spiritual lessons uh, that I came to appreciate in, in a range of different situations uh, around the world. I love that. Like you benefit yourself by giving so much to others. Like you, 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 gain, you, you gain a lot more, you know, by impacting the world positively, by helping the people that I need. And that is why humanitarian service is very important for everyone. I think that's very true. I think, uh, you know, uh, many of us find opportunities uh, to uh, be able to do that. I mean, it doesn't necessarily require participating in a formal service uh, uh, contribution, service situation, 
for a year or two years, such as we were talking about earlier about the Peace Corps. Mm. Uh, but uh, really, I think in our daily lives, we, we, we often have a chance and a choice, you know, where we come upon people who do have need to find practical ways of being able to, to personally give of ourselves. Yes. Uh, perhaps we're not in a situation to give much in the way of money, uh, but to actually give something of ourselves to sacrifice at the very least a bit of our time in terms of being able to help others or more. I think that always helps. And I think, you know, particularly for young people, it's important early on to have that opportunity where you are um, being forced to uh, face that for uh, part of your, you know, process of, of education. I think it also can help influence the kinds of decisions that young people may make in terms of the kinds of careers and jobs that they want to pursue. Mm. Yes. And what are some of the, you know, qualities that are meant to have in order to be successful in the world of international service or humanitarian service? Well, I think the qualities are, are probably universal ones. Maybe one of the most important is that of uh, being a good listener, mm. active listening. I think that's true in so many different circumstances. Uh, you know, I'm reminded of, uh, you know, this sign that I've seen, and I've seen different iterations of this in English as well as in Spanish, different places and in different restaurants where they put up a sign outside of the you know, the cafe or restaurant that says, uh, uh, no Wi-Fi here, talk to each other at your table. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you've, you've had occasion to see that. But, you know, it's, it's in terms of the type of society that we have now, you often see people around the table. My wife and I were at a restaurant last night and we saw this, you know, a bunch of people around the table. Everyone is on their phones. They're busy mm. texting and looking at things on their phones and no one is talking to each other at the table. And I think that, uh, you know, that's part of today's society with technology and the types of social media that we're exposed to. All too often, we're prepared to give much more time to, you know, this device that is in our hands. It's almost permanently glued to our hand yeah. rather than to actually engage with and talk with the people in, in front of us. And, uh, um, in that context, it's more than just talking to people. It's mo what's more important is actually listening to people. Mm -hmm. And I came to see that in terms of my own job. And admittedly, you know, I, I uh, learned a, uh, quite a bit over time, you know, from my own mistakes, uh, the reality that uh, we, we really have to train ourselves when we're engaging in a conversation in the workplace, for example, mm -hmm. Uh, in a dialogue, asking a question about something, don't rush to respond uh, when you hear someone say something, you know, thinking about what it is you're going to say at the next part of the conversation, but actually listen to uh, what someone may be saying. If someone is perhaps making a, a comment or, you know, offering feedback about a particular situation that they see on a job in an office in the work in the work environment, you know, engaging in basically a dynamic conversation of, of questions where you are trying to inquire more of the person, okay, tell me more in terms of 
what you're actually thinking and perceiving and understanding. I found as I grew up in responsibilities as a manager and as a leader, that it was far more important for me to engage in active listening in terms of hearing what people were actually saying and inviting them, uh, pleading with them at times to actually talk to me and explain to me what they were actually feeling and thinking and observing rather than necessarily perhaps saying things that they thought I wanted to hear. Mm. I think all too often, you know, in our social circumstances, our work circumstances, people who are bosses and supervisors end up, frankly, uh, uh, usually being captive to the kinds of messaging that others think that you want to hear, rather than necessarily a full transparency and truth-telling that we so desperately need, you know, within the workplace. So I think active listening is probably one of the most uh, important uh, uh, kind of qualities uh, that I would put forward there. I think the, 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 the essence of trying to put yourself in the shoes of the others, Mm. uh, in the shoes of others is probably a spiritual lesson. Again, regardless of your your religious beliefs or your spiritual background, I think that that's also an important part of being able to have greater success in terms of whatever you're trying to do, be it, you know, within humanitarian assistance or be it within, you know, the workplace of any kind of job that you may be in. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. So we have to always listen attentively, listen to understand what the other person is trying to say. Yeah. And, you know, from, from your travels, you know, you've seen a lot already, you've experienced a lot. Um, and I'm sure, you know, a lot of things, you know, from your challenging experiences, sobering experiences, you know, things could have, you know, want you to, you know, change yourself or, you know, adjust or compromise. How would you advise us to always stay true to ourselves and to those around us, no matter what the situation might be? Well, I think, um, you know, I went through um, certainly a great deal of search and discovery over the course of um, my lifetime. I came to terms with, uh, you know, different things uh, and uh, experiences that uh, forced me to face up to uh, perhaps bias and misunderstandings in things that... uh, I might otherwise uh, not have done. Uh, Certainly, uh, you know, working in um, different circumstances in in Africa, uh, being able to uh, come to an understanding that you can't just think of Africa, for example, as one monolith. I mean, obviously, you're talking about not only 50 countries or so that are part of Africa, but you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of different social groups. I mean, all of those were things that forced me to kind of uh, uh, grow and expand my own kind of understanding and appreciation Mm. of uh, social circumstances. One of, um, you know, I guess the the practical uh, reflections of that was uh, in South Africa, which was the last country that I served in, where I served as ultimately as the uh, um, deputy mission director and then the acting regional um, mission director for Southern Africa, I was heading up a team, you could say, and, and a mission of over 250 people uh, 
uh, perhaps a third of them were Americans and two thirds of them were a range of different nationalities, third country nationals and South Africans that came from very different backgrounds. I mean, not only as different as white Africanas and black South Africans, but even among the black South Africans, um, the South Africans coming from very different languages, very different social experiences, different parts of the country, and trying to reconcile that and understand that, you know, forced me to uh, really um, accept some humility in terms of uh, uh, what I thought my, my understanding and perhaps initial attempts to find quick answers to, to problems. Um, I know I, I dealt over the years in South Africa as well as earlier in Nigeria and Angola with uh, questions of stigma for different populations and marginalization in South Africa. I had to deal with stigma uh, and uh, actually violence uh, that was going on between Black South Africans in some of the more impoverished communities of Johannesburg and Hauteng province against uh, Zimbabweans and other uh, undocumented uh, uh, aliens who were who had come to South Africa in terms of looking for employment and trying to find creative ways to um, curb that as well as to build understanding um, in, in terms of different communities. And certainly some were more inclined to try to brush this under the carpet, but you know, it was very important for us to find ways of being able to address you know, the, the kind of violence and uh, extremist reaction. You know, particularly, I know, I know you're of a Nigerian background, Yes. Um, and so, you know, the reaction of Nigerians and South Africans in, in that kind of context was also something that uh, we came to see. Mm. It was actually, it gave us uh, great amusement to see it expressed in uh, this South African director's movie. I don't know if you ever saw uh, District 9. No, Did not, you see not, that? I didn't see it. Oh, it's, it's an incredible south african science fiction movie mm. um, about basically the effects 10 years later of this huge alien ship that comes and kind of parks over johannesburg mm. uh, and the, the aliens that are on that ship are actually refugees they all they're they're, they're called uh, uh oh what was the, the term that they gave them uh prawns mm. uh you know because they kind of look like giant uh, crustaceans, giant shrimp, yeah. uh, and they're they're sick and they're poor. You know, they're they're not the kind of aliens that you associate with in kind of typical science fiction movies where people have come to attack the earth or that. No, these people are looking for health, and in fact, the South Africans are busy dealing with refugees from among these aliens, mm. yeah, that have come down. And uh, in the course of the movie, you end up finding out about how. You know, there are all these different mafias, uh, Nigerian mafia mm -hmm. that are smuggling goods yeah. that they know the aliens uh, really come to enjoy in the slums outside of Johannesburg. And obviously, that's a clear parable for the kind of social circumstances that, uh, you know, we face today yes. in, in different parts of, of sub-Saharan Africa. So mm -hmm. I strongly recommend it to you, Toby, to and to any of the folks listening to this who haven't seen 
District 9. I'm blanking on the name of the director. I think it's Niels Blomkamp or something. I'm probably doing something with his his name, but it's a brilliant yeah. uh, South African science fiction movie uh, that really talks a lot mm-hmm. in code, of course, about the kinds of social circumstances that we face uh, today as humans. I have to check that out. District, District 9, you said. Yeah. District 9, District for sure. Nine. He did another movie called Chappie, mm-hmm. uh, also dealing with uh, you know, the reality of this uh, robot, I think, on the loose in South Africa. But oh, District yeah. 9 is the one that uh, that uh, I was talking about. Yes, wow. See, from, your, from our conversation so far, I can realize that your book is you know, so, so filled up with a lot of life experiences. You've experienced a lot. And, um, you know, there are a lot of things that, are, that readers out there could, you know, learn from your book, from your life experiences that you've packed into your, your memoir. I, I believe there's a, there's a new one coming out very soon, right? Or you're working on other projects. Can you tell us about other projects here? I am. I, I put out Andean Adventures about a year ago, mm. um, and I released the audio version of it on Amazon and Audible in April. It's been selling pretty good, uh, but I, I hope to be able to uh, increase the, the awareness of it uh, among people as well and certainly encourage people to consider downloading either the ebook Kindle version or the, uh, or the paperback if they prefer. But uh, in addition, I'm working on a project um, that uh, has a, a working name of uh, Arab and Afghani adventures, mm. talking about my experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm. Um, I served a total of a couple of years in different parts of Iraq and in Kandahar, Afghanistan. And I also am trying to, to pull together my notes for maybe something that I'll call African adventures, uh, for lack of a better name, talking about my experiences in um, uh, a range of different countries, but particularly Angola, Nigeria, and South Africa. Uh, my family and I spent a total of about almost 10 years in, in Africa. Uh, and there's a lot to, to share from that. Yeah, so we're looking forward to that. So what's the best way, you know, to get a copy of your book? And also what's the best way to connect and work with you in case, you know, by the time the new books will come out, you know, for us to stay up to date and, you know, you know, get the book immediately there out. What's the best way to do all of this? Well, people can certainly look up Andean Adventures on Amazon. It's available on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, they can look up my name, Alan J. Wind uh, or Alan J. Alonzo Wind on Amazon. Uh, and they can find ways of uh, contacting me there through the author's profile on Amazon. Mm. They can also visit my website at uh, uh, enableenoble.net. That's E N A B L E E N O B L E dot net, where I have a website. I have the links to purchase. Uh, those books and others uh, available. uh, And also people can connect with my newsletter. I've been putting out more or less every four to six weeks, uh, a newsletter trying to share uh, current thoughts and experiences as well as a blog uh, Mm. that's up on the website as well as actually on the the Amazon site. And I encourage people who have any interest at all to, to come and visit. Yeah, that's awesome. I'll place all of this information in the show notes of this episode. So I encourage everyone to click on the links, to copy the links and get across to Alan and get the book. 
on Amazon and also, you know, be blessed and stay in touch for the new adventure books that are coming out very, very soon. So if, if there's like a, a lesson that you could teach us like from your life experience so far, like just one from your spiritual growth, personal development, that, you know, that life has taught you from all of this experience, what, what would that be? What would that lesson be that you would love to, you know, tell the listeners and myself today? Well, I guess uh, one lesson I can say um, is that, uh, you know, in the very difficult politics of the United States, there's a, there's a concept called American exceptionalism, uh, where, uh, you know, it's considered to be somehow a, a piece of patriotic duty for Americans to subscribe to this concept of American exceptionalism, which basically is arguing that somehow America is better than others. It really stands out as uh, uh, the greatest country in the world and far better than, than any other. And uh, I think my experiences overseas uh, certainly taught me to appreciate that true patriotism, mm. true love for one's country mm. comes not from necessarily subscribing to a narrow kind of chauvinistic view, uh, be it of your clan or your tribe or your country, what have you, but from really looking at humanity as a whole mm -hmm. and recognizing that every country, every people have things that help them stand out. Uh, that for me is perhaps one of the most important lessons and it's an adjunct to my own spiritual search uh, where I examined different uh, spiritual uh, traditions and experiences. I talk about it a bit also within the book, Andean Adventures, mm -hmm. and how I kind of came to terms ultimately with the spiritual choices um, that I made. So I would have to say that that's probably one of the biggest uh, lessons that I can share with you today. Well, that's very beautiful. Thank you so much, Alan, for everything you've been able to share with us today. And everything I've been able to learn from you in this episode, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for sharing your life experience in this book. And thank you so much, you know, for all the humanitarian services that you, you know, you offer to the world. You've, you know, had a great impact on the world already. And for this, I'm, I'm very grateful. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Toby. Very kind. And I'm so happy to have had the chance to meet you and chat with you today. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you. <laughs>